Parshat Vayakel is uh, is a challenge. It's a challenge on several grounds. First of all, Vayakel is most years Vayakel Pkudeh, which is huge. Uh, and for mo- for many people, it's also, um, I wouldn't say boring, but it's somewhat uh, tendentious only because it, it's repeating essentially a fulfillment of what we spent our energy in Parshat Truma, part of Titzavah and part of Kitisa learning about. That's part one. And then here and there, there are little nuances like the Marot Tatsavot that show up. Of course, a favorite topic to discuss about Vayakel is Moshe opening his command uh, with the mitzvah of Shabbat before uh, getting into the details about the Mishkan. But of course, the big question that hangs over all of us is, why is this entire piece repeated? Um, also, by the way, most years, by the, I checked my records, by the time we get to Vayakel and Kudeh, we're talking about Purim, because uh, it's usually right around Purim time. And if not, we're actually, in some cases, already getting on to Haggadah. Uh, but this year we have a special gift. We have Parshat Vayakel by itself. And we have Parshat Vayakel well before Purim enough that we can actually talk about it. So I want to focus really on the larger picture, which is these last six chapters uh, of Breshi, of Shemot, which are all about completing the work of the Mishkan, which could have easily been accomplished in a couple of Sukim. It's a lot, a lot of redundant material. And the Torah, of course, is quite economic in its wording, even in narratives where the Torah is sometimes a bit more verbose, like, for instance, famously the story of the slave getting a wife for Yitzchak, which is repeated after the narrative, uh, after the narrator tells us, the slave retells the story. But there are the nuances are a little bit different. Even in celebratory texts like the Nisim, where each day is given its own six psukim, even though they're the exact same korban and exact same wording, exact same trope, exactly spelling as every day, the only difference being with the day number, the shevet, and the name of the nasi. Uh, but Vayakob Kude is just such a, a bigger problem because it goes in all of the details of each of the components of the Mishkan, which we already got. And all we're told is that Salel and Oliav and his Chachamim all did that exactly that way, and Bnei Yisrael did it exactly the way they were supposed to do it, and that's out. And we could have skipped um, from the beginning of Ayakel, all of Ayakel, we could have started at the beginning of Kudai, which gives us the number of how many people contributed the silver to the Mishkan, and then skip to the last chapter, which describes the construction of the Mishkan. But I think there's something far deeper, far more powerful going on, and that's the reason this is all here. And you can tell from the title kind of where I'm going. I want to ask a, a much smaller question and another smaller question, and no questions that are small, but more detailed and more, fo- more focused question uh, than just the repetition of the Maseh Mishkan, uh, and that is why Moshe begins his presentation of the Mishkan with Shabbat, that's already a well-trod question, but why the one Malachah of Shabbat that he mentions is Esh. Now, the general approach to understanding why Shabbat comes before he talks about the Mishkan is, first of all, structurally, that if you look at the beginning of Kitisa, which is the end of the commands of the Mishkan, 
the very last thing we're commanded regarding Mishkan is Shabbat. So now in a chiastic fashion, we now start with Shabbat and the connection, of course, is well known, which is that we learn the Malachot of Shabbat from the Mishkan, but more pointedly, that we're told, and Rav Hirsch says this in a beautiful way, that the construction of the Mishkan, which is the most amazing, elegant, incredible thing that man could construct, which is an abode for God, as great as that is, you don't do it on Shabbat. Shabbat trumps Mishkan, and we do not build a Mishkan on Shabbat. And as such, that's why Moshe begins with, don't do any Malachan Shabbat, and then describes the Mishkan, so that Mishkan will not be built on Shabbat. That's fine. But why Esh? So that's one detailed question I want to ask. The other detailed question I want to ask is about something that we read at the end of Parshat Kitisa. At the end of Parshat Kitisa, which is the end of the forgiveness or mini forgiveness or qualified forgiveness or partial forgiveness for the Egel, we hear that Moshe came down from the mountain after the last time and his face was glowing such that B'nai Israel were afraid to see him and he had a cover he wore over his face at some particular point. Was it when he was talking to B'nai Israel? Was it between talking to B'nai Israel and talking to Hashem? Unclear. The Nitziv has his own, own approach. The general approach is that he wore it when he talked to B'nai Israel because they were afraid of seeing him. But then the question is, how long did that last? And as a friend of mine pointed out last Friday night, he said, well, we never read that Moshe stopped with the mask, so we have to assume that for the rest of his career, he wore the mask, which would then mean that there's a whole generation that grew up only knowing Moshe with a mask, never seeing his face, which is very odd. And Moshe's farewell speech, which <laughs> includes atem re'item, somebody could turn around and say, well, not so much. And by the way, you think about the rebellions that took place in the Midbar, the rebellion after the Chetam Raglim and the rebellion of Korach, etc. Why people don't turn around and say, who is this guy anyways? We don't even know who he is. We don't see him. So I want to see about the mask, but those, again, are relatively small things. I want to look at the larger picture. Let's go back to the beginning. In the aftermath of Matan Torah, and we've talked about this countless times, um, Hashem says to Moshe, go tell Bnei Israel that I spoke to you from the heavens. This is when Bnei Israel said to Moshe, you go get the mitzvot. We're afraid. You go get the mitzvot, and you tell us. And what is the first thing Hashem says to Moshe, meaning when they're just the two of them talking, what's the first command he gives him? Lo tasun iti, elohe chesef, elohe zahav, lo tasu lachem. Do not make in my presence, with me, gods of silver or gold. Right? And then he tells them how to make the Mizbeach. And the Mizbeach is very simple, it's out of dirt. And then at the end of that, we have this line, Wherever you bless my name, I will come and bless you. Or wherever you mention my name, I will come and bless you. Which indicates that HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence is and is going to be manifest among the people. And that can happen. All they have to do is mention God's name and God's presence. It's beautiful. And if you think about that in regards to the experience of Matan Torah, you can splice it two ways, and they both work. One is that the direct experience of, of Matan Torah that B'nai Israel were frightened of, that level of, of immanence would not take place, but there'd be less intense presence of God 
that God will come and visit the people. Possibility two is to say that God will return to visit the people, and that by that point, they won't be so frightened. Okay, could do it either way. Okay, roll ahead. And now we know what happens. Hashem gives Moshe all these mishpatim inside the cloud. And then subsequently Moshe comes out, makes a breach with the people, goes up to Sinai. As Hashem said, come up, I'm going to give you the rest. And Hashem gives him the construction of the Mishkan, the directions for how to construct the Mishkan. And what is the absolute telos of the Mishkan? Hashem says it right here. Vasu mikdash v'shachanti betocham. They will make a mikdash and I will dwell among them. And in a sense, this seems to be a response to Matan Torah and the people's fear. Because on the one hand, the people want God's presence among them. On the other hand, they're scared of it. And so the Mikdash seems to be a way of saying, God's presence will be manifest among you, but in a way that's protected and safer. That's the Mikdash, the Mishkan. All right, very good. Hashem gives all these mitzvot relating to the Mishkan, which, by the way, the secondary purpose of the Mishkan, as we've talked about, is for Hashem to continue to give mitzvot to Moshe from between the spot of the Kruvim, above the Kaporet, I'll meet with you there, I'll speak with you there. All right, roll ahead. All the laws of Mishkan are given, culminating in the appointment of B'Tzalel and the mitzvah of Shabbat. And then what happens? Down on the ground, B'nai Israel do what they do, Aaron does what he does, and we now have an ego. What does Hashem say? We've got to read this carefully. And I want to read this in sequence. And I'm going to, before going here, I want to make a comment about Rashi Ibn Ezra versus Ramban. We all are familiar with the huge machloket that exists between basically the Ramban and everybody else about the sequence of events. Rashi, Ibn Ezra, and most of the Rishonim will take the position that Ein Muktam Mucharba Torah and that the Mishkan was actually a mitzvah given after the Egel, and it's kapara for the Egel, the Ramban says, read the items in order. I'm going to make a suggestion which ignores that distinction because whatever order things may have happened in, this is the order that it's presented in the text. And so I want to see what is the text teaching me. So at this point, subsequent to Hashem giving Moshe all the details of how to build the Mishkan, the purpose of which is to enable HaKadosh Baruch Hu to dwell among B'nai Israel. B'nai Israel mess up. That's the ego. What does Hashem say to Moshe on top of the mountain? Go down because the nation that you brought out of Israel has messed up, has fouled themselves. They very quickly left the path I told them, right, which was Elohei Zahav, Elohei Kasef, Asulahem Egel Masecha. They more made this poor molten calf. That's how they behaved. They worshipped it and they said, This is the God that took you out of Egypt. Now, what do I see? I see that this nation is stubborn. And this is an amazing line. HaKadosh Baruch says to Moshe, Leave me alone. Let me be. And I will be harpy I will let my anger go forth and destroy them. It's as if Hashem needs Moshe's permission. I'll make you into a new nation. Start with Moshe. Moshe, of course, responds with, I don't have to write it here, by Moshe begs him and he says, You have the Brit, 
we have our Mitzvah in Yisrael, you have what are the Egyptians going to say, and Hashem backs off. Okay. Now, after Hashem backs off from destroying them, but that's a partial back off. What that means is, by the way, and B'nai Israel may maybe never find out how close they were to being decimated. But before Moshe comes down from the mountain, the second time, Moshe comes down, breaks the tablets, etc., and he comes, I'm going to get forgiveness. Hashem then says to him, Okay, time to move on. Time to move from our Sinai. You take the nation. Okay, not, I'm not destroying them. Take them with you. The nation you took out of Mitzrayim. To the land that I swore to give to your ancestors. What he says, I'm sending a malach in front. Now, there's a huge machloket among the Rishonim, a lot of discussion about whether or not this malach is the same malach promised at the end of Mishpatim. Or does this refer to the fact that Hashem is not going to be leading them directly? He's going to send an agent. All right. I'm going to send the disperse all those nations. El And where are you going to? Good. Why? What does Hashem say? I'm not going with you. Why? We know what that means. I might destroy you on the way. In other words, I can't be among you because you are stubborn. You're going to go fall back on your old sinful ways, and my anger will shoot forth, and I'm going to destroy you, so I'm going to back off. I'll let a malach take you. Okay? And Moshe, by the way, approximates that because what does he do when he comes down? Moshe yikachata ohel. He takes his own tent, his own tent, because there's no Mishkan yet. He picks it. I want you to get the picture. Here's Moshe Rabbeinu coming down. Everybody's scared. They don't know what's going to happen. And Moshe's move is to pick up his tent. We assume he takes it apart and moves it out of the camp and sets it up there. Far away from the camp. The Karalo Ohel Moed. And he said, This is now Ohel Moed. This is where I'm going to meet with God. Because do you know why? God won't come to the camp anymore. If I want to meet with God, I got to be out of the camp. So if God wants to talk to me, I got to be somewhere away from you guys because God does not want to be with you guys. This is what B'nai Israel are hearing explicitly. He calls it Ohel Moed. And what happens? If somebody seeks God, and notice, not just Doresh, but Mavakesh. They're not just getting information. They're seeking God. What do they do? They have to go outside of the camp. God not coming into the camp. This is really huge news. Now watch what happens as we follow. God says, okay, I'm going to make a breed. This is after the Midot Rachamim. This is at the final stage of the post-Egel piece, we think. Hashem says, I'm making a breach. Neged kol amcha aseni flaot. I'm going to do all sorts of wonders. Shaloni v'bechol aretz v'bechol agoyim. You've never seen such wonders. never heard of such wonders. Notice the language. All the nation that you're among, you Moshe, you're among them. And Masei Adonai Kinorahu. Hashem's actions are awesome in the pre-Rijman time meaning of awesome. Asher ani osei imach. Meaning, I'm going to be 
up there, as it were, transcendent, doing these miraculous things, these awe-inspiring things to help you, and everybody will see the nation that you are amidst. I'm going to send all those nations away. Don't make a breed with them, etc., etc. Okay, good. So that's what happens. And Moshe comes down, and his face is glowing, and the people are afraid. So where are we right now? Again, I, I'm not concerned with the event. I'm concerned with how the, not the events, but with the concern with how the text presents the events. At this point in the narrative, where are we? We have escaped decimation. We have escaped, escaped annihilation. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has told us that he's no longer going to make his presence manifest among us, but he will direct agents to lead us and to wipe out our enemies, and then he's going to do all sorts of wondrous things to lead us to the Mibar and lead us to the land, but all from a distance. And who is in the midst of Bnei Israel? Moshe. Watch what happens in the very next Pasuk, the opening Pasuk of our parasha. This is what God commanded to do. And he starts. And this, of course, is a necessary preface to the Malachat HaMishkan. And then he mentions Eish. Lo tevaru Eish v'chomoshvotechem b'yom HaShavat. Why Eish? So I'm going to suggest that he mentions Eish because what had they just done as an act of worship? They had just made an ego. And how did they make that ego? It was forged in a fire. So he's taking the paradigm, the paradigmatic act associated with constructing worship. That's not done on Shabbat. This is a response to the ego. And what's the very next thing he says? And by the way, how do I know that this is the same setting? Because what's the opening word in Pasuk Aleph? He gathers them together. Who does he gather? Not just the leaders, everybody. And now what happens to Pasuk Dalad? Moshe speaks to all of Israel, which means they're still there. He doesn't even have to regather them. They're still there. And he says, this is what God commanded. And notice, the focus is not, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how to make a Mishkan. This is what God commanded. And now take a look here. Something unbelievable, something miraculous, something unprecedented happens. Moshe gives the commands, collect all this stuff. What happens? They all leave. And now what happens after they hear this command? Everybody who was inspired. Everybody who felt moved to do so brought a gift for the, for the Malacha, and for the Big Day Kohani. More men came than women. All of these gifts and these jewelry and all this stuff, men, the women, they're all bringing. Meaning, 
People had their own possessions. They were already dyed purple and dyed blue. They brought them. And the pelts that they had, they brought them. I mean, this could be summed up very quickly, which is the people brought what they were told to bring. Why is the text saying this? Because look at the giving. Look at the spirit. Look at what moves them. Meaning, it wasn't the people who are saying, okay, I'm donating X amount of money for that kind of material. If they had that material of their own, they brought it. And women came who knew how to spin flax. They came to spin. And they spun wool. They spun all of these things, all the materials. Women who knew how to do it spun the goat hairs. They weren't left out. The leaders brought all the different stones that are supposed to be put in the ephod and the kitvot ephod, I mean, and the choshen. People brought the spices and the oil, the ma'or, the shaman, the shaman, the shaman, Listen to that statement. Everybody who was moved brought stuff. Now you could think that five people were moved. Watch what happens here. All these chachamim are doing the work. Come to Moshe. The people have brought. Too much stuff. I said, it's unprecedented. You ever hear a companion shut down because he said, he said, we have too much money? Notice the emphasis. The work that God commanded, there's too much stuff. Imagine this. Moshe had to put out an announcement throughout the camp saying, Nobody should do anymore. Don't give anymore. Stop bringing. And they had enough stuff. And then in the intervening chapters, from the middle of Perak Lamed Vav until the end of Perak Lamed Tet, it's a description of the creating the, the things, exactly the way Hashem did it. And now please take a look at Perak Mem. We look a lot at Perak Mem, we're skipping around. And there's this, a, a, a phrase that I highlighted because it shows up over and over and over, and it's critical. What does Hashem say? On the first day of the first month, set up Mishkan Oamoed. Time out. Let's think about it. What's the purpose of the Mishkan? The purpose of the Mishkan is What did Hashem say? I'm not going to be with you anymore. I'm separating myself from you. You're among the people. I'm not being among the people. I can't be among the people. They've pushed me out. If I'm among them, I might lose my anger and kill them. Whatever reason, I'm not with the people anymore. What does Hashem turn around and say here? After that long winter of donating and work and artisanship, what does he say at the end of that winter? On the first day of the first month, new beginnings, set up the Mishkan. And he tells them what to do. And now moving ahead, And now we hear, but how the Mishkan was set up on the anniversary of 
and the anniversary, the first anniversary of the first mitzvah given, Kiddush HaChodesh. He sets everything up. He meaning he's directing people to do it. Now, and this is the phrase that keeps going through. He sets up the Aron, he puts the Luchot in the Aron, and um, and he puts the Parochet up, and then he puts the Shulchan and puts the Lacham on it, and he sets up the Menorah and puts the Neirot and lights the Neirot, then he puts the Mizbach HaZahav, and he puts the Ketoret, and then he puts up the curtain, the curtain that blocks off the Kodesh from the outside, and then he sets up the Kior, and the Moshe and Aaron and his sons all wash their hands, then he sets up the Chatzer, and everything's finished. And now we get to the glorious moment. This is the scene, this is the Chazak. The cloud now covers this Ohamoid. It's in the middle of the camp, not an Ohamoid that Moshe set up outside. God's glory fills the Mishkan. Moshe could not come in because the Kavod is there. In other words, we're replicating the top of Harsina. Remember, Moshe had to wait outside of the cloud. We're, we've created a replica of Harsina here. And now, a later note, whenever the cloud would lift, the Nehiswa would travel, but notice, it's not just a directive, it's a description. It's not just saying this is what you're supposed to do. When the cloud lifts, you travel. When the cloud settles, you don't travel. It's a description, like we see in Balotcha. When the cloud would lift, they'd travel. And when the cloud would settle, they would set, set, they'd stay put, even if the location wasn't ideal. Look at the Sforno in Perak Yod of Bamidbar. Beautiful description of Nezra's loyalty. Ki anan Adonai al mishkan yomam bo. Get ready for Chazak. The cloud was on top of the Mishkan during the, as a cloud during the day and as fire during the night. Whenever B'nai Yisrael traveled, meaning Hashem's Shekhinah is among the people. And Hashem's cloud is on the Mishkan and Hashem is traveling with B'nai Yisrael. What has happened? What's happened has been a monumental reconciliation. And what's magical about this reconciliation is who initiated it? Not HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And not really B'nai Yisrael. Who initiated it? Moshe. What did Moshe do? Moshe said, we got to get these two back together. HaKadosh Baruch Hu was so angry, was so concerned with his own anger, as it were, that he separated himself, said, you're among the people, I'll send the Malach, don't worry, I'll take care of you, but from a distance. And Moshe himself, replicating that, moves his, his tent outside. And then Moshe, Rabban, shall call Yisrael. What does he do? He says, okay, guys, here's what we need to do. We need to collect stuff. We need to force God's hand, as it were, to reconnect and join us and be among our camp. And that's why he starts up by saying, 
This is what God commanded. And then, This is what God commanded. Throughout, it's all about what God commanded, because what was the real Chet Egel? The real Chet Egel was not worshipping foreign gods. It's not a foreign god. What was the statement? We're worshipping Hashem. And that's the Egel. The real sin was Asher Lotziva. They're worshiping God in a way that he didn't command and against his commands. Great intentions, but wrong mindset. I want to worship God, but the mindset is, I'll define how to worship God. And that's why the emphasis throughout these chapters are kasher tziva Adonai Moshe. We're doing everything exactly the way that God commanded it. And the people turn out with gifts from their own homes and donations that don't stop. So there's too much stuff there. So it's that they have to actually put a stop, a call to stop the donations. And the final statement comes at the very end of Shemot when God accepts that tshuva and reconnects and not reluctantly, but joyously, the cloud covers the Mishkan again or brought whole. I'd like to posit that at this point, the mask is no longer necessary. Because why did Moshe wear a mask? The people were afraid to look at him. Why are they afraid to look at him? I think they're afraid to look at him because looking at him reminds them that they had a Kodesh Baruch Hu in their midst and they blew it. Now that they have acted so heroically, so energetically, and with such initiative that creates amazing vulnerability, and yet they're willing to risk it, and now a Kodesh Baruch Hu has blessed them, the mask is no longer necessary. And they're able to look at Moshe Rabbeinu as he speaks to them and gives the mitzvot and leads them throughout the rest of the midbar. I believe that's what Parshat Vayakel and the whole end of Shemot is about. And that's why the Torah goes into such detail about it. It's not detail which is necessary as a narrative, and it's not detail which is necessary for halacha. It's detail which is necessary on a much more sublime level, which is this is the detail of how the relationship that was ruptured was healed, and it was healed at the initiative of Moshe Rabbeinu, who brought the two sides together.